Last week, I flew to Legaspi to speak, and on my Cebu Pacific flight, I was posed with a problem. It was announced before we boarded that the flight was completely full, so my expectation was someone would be sitting next to me, and that's completely fine. Upon boarding, I took my aisle seat next to an elderly lady in the middle seat. The window seat was empty. When boarding was complete and the plane door closed, the window seat was still empty. Apparently, it was the only free seat in the entire flight. I thank the Lord. Now the lady in the middle seat can move to the window seat, and both of us can have some more space, and I can have the armrest all to myself. But as I waited, she didn't move. Now, I could have moved to the window seat for my aisle seat, but she would still be in the middle. I was posed with a dilemma. Should I ask this older woman to move to the window seat or not? with the reason that it can give both of us more room and make this flight more comfortable. Why did she stick to that middle seat when there was an empty window seat next to her? Why wouldn't she move? Frustrated, I even texted Cindy, I don't know why this woman wants to sit next to big me on this tiny airplane. Anyway, I decided it wasn't worth the hassle and effort on this short 45-minute flight to try to explain to her why she should move and convince her to move. She didn't look like she understood much English, and my Tagalog is, as you know, non-existent. So I had to sit like this, arms folded the entire flight, because also she wanted the armrest. When the plane landed and we were about to get off the plane, she tapped me and pointed up, and with sign language she asked if I would be able to bring down her bags from the overhead compartment before we deplaned. And then it dawned on me why she probably didn't want to move seats. She wanted to make sure I wouldn't run away before helping her take down her luggage. And of course, I was very glad to help. You know, I share this story because every day we are posed with decisions of how to act in major or minor things. Sometimes if we act or do not act, it can have a snowball effect. Sometimes what we say or don't say, or even how we say it, will affect the outcome. All of this takes great wisdom and discernment, something this generation, young and old, is lacking. In a generation that feels it needs to always question and then always express his or her own thoughts and opinions on the matter, even when no one's asking you, sometimes it can come back to bite us in the future, when the right course of action, perhaps, would have been just as simply keep quiet. Or perhaps we make a mountain out of a molehill, if you understand that saying, meaning making something big, which was small, because we don't want to let something small just go and just forgive and forget. Then, unnecessarily, time-consuming drama is now part of our lives, just because we wouldn't let go. What we decide to do or not to do, to say or not to say, to believe or not to believe, is a matter of wisdom and discernment. And wisdom has to come from the Lord, And a lot of God's direction for wisdom is found in His Word. As we continue our sermon series, Checkmate, looking at the life of King Solomon, we want to explore specifically some principles for how to live wisely as it relates to the practical things of life. You see, in life, there is spiritual wisdom which concerns spiritual things. And yet there's also practical wisdom which refers to everyday life judgment and discernment. It can refer to the the grasping of everyday knowledge and its proper application and even understanding people and their natural responses and reasonings. 
It may surprise you that apart from how to gain spiritual wisdom, the Bible is chock full of advice on practical wisdom found especially in the wisdom literature books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Don't ever tell me the Bible is not practical. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be studying verses 16 to 28. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. And we're going to see how Solomon, who has been given great wisdom by God, as we talked about in our last message in this series, will employ God-given practical wisdom to adjudicate an important matter from which we can also draw some principles and learn from it, specifically principles dealing with interpersonal conflict. Again, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. I read now verses 16 to 21. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had borne. The situation is such that there were two prostitutes who stood before King Solomon to find a solution to their argument. This argument dealt with whose child was the living one and whose child was the dead one. Apparently, one of the women had accidentally rolled on top of her newborn and the baby had died. And the mother of the dead baby supposedly switched her dead baby with the newborn of her roommate while she was still sleeping. When the mother of the living newborn woke up and tried to nurse her son, she noticed that he was dead, and upon closer inspection saw that he was not her baby. Now, we're told that there are no witnesses. It was only the two of them in the house. And as prostitutes, most probably people didn't pay much attention to them. The two babies were born three days apart, so no one can really tell the subtle differences with newborn babies so close in age. And since they were prostitutes and presumably slept with many men, there was no way to trace whose child these were to the genetic features of their biological fathers, such as hair color. There were no DNA tests back then which would have conclusively resolved this argument and accusation with great clarity. This was a case of he said, she said, meaning one had to make a judgment call who was telling the truth and who was lying. Now listen, in some situations, there are really differences of perspectives whereby we think one is lying and one is telling the truth, but in actuality and in reality, both are telling the truth based on their own perspectives. But this is not one of those cases. Here someone is definitely lying and the other is definitely telling the truth. But how would Solomon deal with this situation? Now, before we read further, let me stop here and note a warning for all of us. There are liars in the world. There are believable liars. There are very believable liars who are Christians. Can you imagine anyone ever doubting the words of a woman who's claiming that this is her child? And yet, that is happening here. A mother lying about her child. 
You know, when I was growing up in Sunday school, listening to the story told by the teacher from the Bible, I thought this was an unbelievable case, not grounded in reality, until I grew up and watched the news and heard about many instances where women would steal other people's newborns from the nursery. And because babies kind of all look the same as newborns, who really notices? That's why today, one of the most secure places in any hospital is the pediatric nursery. My friends understand that even in our Christian community, there are liars. And if there are liars in the world in which we live, then as a word of caution to those whose inclination is to believe everything and anything and everyone, don't. Don't believe everything you hear, read, or watch. Make sure you fact check so you won't get burned. Often, because people know we don't fact check or we're too lazy to fact check, then as long as someone or something is believable, people who are convincing, credible, and believable, and even spiritual, can often say or do anything they want and get away with it, often to take advantage of someone else. As followers of Jesus Christ, when it comes to spiritual things, the Bible tells us we are to fact check, as the Bereans exemplified for us in Acts chapter 17, so that we can gain true spiritual wisdom. And therefore, likewise, it should also be the same for practical wisdom, that we fact check whether a deal is too good to be true. A gossip that we hear that we may want to share is actually based on truth. Any news or information that is too juicy and unbelievable, we better fact check, or even perhaps a scam. Fact check. Remember, there may be another side, another perspective, another truth, another opinion, and another story. And this is our first practical wisdom principle, especially when it comes to interpersonal conflicts. Number one, don't believe everything you hear. Fact check, remembering there may be another truth. Don't believe everything you hear. Fact check, remembering there may be another truth. And this practical principle from the Bible is even more important to remember, especially in the age of artificial intelligence or AI, deep fakes, Photoshop manipulation, bots, social media, and other texts. As AARP, the national organization advocating for the elderly in the U.S. warns seniors, scammers are adept at manipulating the latest technological advances to commit their crimes. These days, it's happening in the world of artificial intelligence, commonly known as AI. AI voice cloning is already beginning or bringing a new twist to scams that have been around forever. For instance, the grandparent scam calls now can feature the actual voices of the loved one the criminal is impersonating. These tactics are startling, but the ways we protect ourselves haven't changed. We must fact check. There's a story of a Houston area couple who received a call last month from their adult son, or at least they thought it was him. The voice sounded exactly like him. He had been in a car accident where he hit a woman who was six months pregnant and had just been released from the hospital and now in the county jail about to be charged with DWI, as the news reported. He needed 5,000 U.S. dollars to get himself out of this mess. Absolutely convinced that the caller was their child, they handed over the cash to an intermediary who came to their home to pick it up. How the scammers pull it off? Most likely by using 
artificial intelligence to clone the sun's voice, says Alex Hammerstone, a cyber analyst at Trusted Sec, an information security consulting company. He points to the case in Houston as one vivid example of how the latest generative AI technology, including voice mimicking software, deep fake videos, and chat box like ChatGPT can be used by bad actors. They have the potential to level up criminals' ability to impersonate anyone, your grandchild, your police officer, even your spouse, Hammerstone notes. With voice cloning tech, he added, scammers need to capture only a few seconds of the child's audio, which they can get from TikTok videos or an Instagram video or anything like that to offer a convincing impersonation. In another widely reported incident this month, an Arizona woman named Jennifer DeStefano said she received a call from what sounded like her 15-year-old daughter, Brianna, who was on a ski trip crying and claiming she was being held by kidnappers demanding ransom money. DeStefano confirmed that her daughter was safe, but was shaken that the voice sounded exactly like Brianna's. She attributed the uncanny likeness to AI. And that, my friends is why knowing Tagalog, Mandarin Chinese, Hokkien Chinese, Bisaya in English, and using all five in your speech at the same time is the best way to counter AI impersonators. Because there's no way a computer can say this as naturally as we do. Kasi, guaycha, the steak with potatoes. In way, it's in good. Good luck trying to clone that. And that's how all of you speak, by the way. <laughs> how many times do I have to tell this to my family? Don't believe everything you hear, read or watch on the internet or in messaging apps. Use your brains, wisdom and discernment. Why in the world would you think that a beautiful model from Russia would want to be your friend and get to know you? Most likely, it's a guy from India or Nigeria trying to play you or scam you for money. However, laugh as you would. I recently heard of a middle-aged church leader who fell into this scam. By the way, let me just say, as your pastor, I will never ask you for money over any of my social media accounts. If someone is impersonating me or asking you for money for my account, you know that it's not me. And if you want to check, make sure you check with my family or the staff or myself. People have been lying to one another ever since Satan lied to Adam and Eve. For millennia, be wise and don't believe everything you hear. Fact check, remembering there may be another truth. Look at verses 22 to 23. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. At this point, the other woman chimes in and tells Solomon, it didn't happen as how the first woman said it happened. My son is the living one, and the dead son is hers. To which the first woman argued that her position was correct. And now the wise king spoke. Notice that he summarizes each of the woman's positions and arguments and does not take sides. He wisely clarifies the argument and gets to the heart of the issue, which is that both women were claiming that the living son was their son. 
Notice that Solomon wisely didn't make any side commentary about the fact that they were both prostitutes and say to them, well, you both deserve this for your sinful profession. He didn't say, serves you right for having children out of wedlock. Because this is what we often do when we allow our biases and personal experiences to cloud our judgment. You know, we naturally want to side with our friends or the people we like more or identify with, and even the ones who told us first. Then we somehow justify in our mind that they deserve what they got. For example, if there's a rich person that you don't like very much, and that person had something stolen from him, we may say, oh, it's not a big deal. They already have so much money. It's okay if they lose some of it. It won't hurt them. Or that man was so ungenerous anyways and a mean person serves them right to have things stolen from them. But I hope you see my point. It's not about the character of that man or what he has done. It was the fact that someone stole from him. It doesn't matter the side commentary and the bias. Wisdom and discernment dictates that we get to the heart of the issue. Solomon didn't comment on why they were prostitutes or why they even chose to room together if they weren't that good of friends. He got to the heart of the issue, which was the custody issue of the living son. And this is our second practical wisdom principle, especially when it comes to interpersonal conflicts. Number two, get to the heart of the issue. Don't allow bias to color your judgment. Get to the heart of the issue, not allowing bias to color your judgment. This principle will save us from many bad decisions and wrong assumptions. You know, my friends, we are by nature biased and prejudicial people, often basing it on our own experience or lack of understanding. In fact, Christians can be the worst when it comes to this because of spiritual knowledge and spiritual pride. We view ourselves and other Christians as so much better than everyone else. Or perhaps we Christians are always right over the non-Christians. But that thinking and that bias will burn you. That's why so often unscrupulous people target church communities for scams because they know Christians lower their guards when they come in contact with another Christian. You and I know how it is. When someone comes up to you and says, I'm a Christian, suddenly you're no longer wary of them. Here is a fellow follower of Jesus, and we must believe everything they say. In any scenario, when we get to the heart of the issue, we may find that bad people or people we don't like can be wronged and can have wrong done to them. And likewise, we may find out that spiritual, godly people can do wrong and even lie and connive. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying that a person's background and your experience with them won't wisely bias your thoughts and bring caution about that person. If a person is an habitual liar or stealer, the likelihood for them being the guilty party is very high. All I'm advocating for, exemplified through the actions of Solomon's God-given wisdom, is that in any situation, we must get to the heart of the issue without bias to help us make the wisest and most discerning decisions. Was a promise made and then broken, regardless of the people involved or changing situation? Was a crime committed, even if the person is an outstanding member of the community, and this would be a first-time criminal offense? Did someone steal or not pay back a loan, regardless of if that person is a Christian or a member of the church or your own family member? 
Getting to the heart of the issue and not allowing bias to color your judgment will help you make very wise decisions. Case in point, I recently talked to the wife of a doctor who had a private practice in the U.S. and served as his office manager. We were talking about how challenging having a private medical practice in the U.S. is today. I asked her about her office staff and nurses, and she responded by telling me that she cannot stand one of the ladies in the office, one of her receptionists. She was brash, hard, and had a very strong personality. So I asked, as the office manager and wife of the doctor, did you fire this woman? The reply was no, she's still employed. I asked why, you can't stand her. She said, well, pastor, while I can't stand this woman, she's the only one in the office who's able to effectively collect payment from the patients who have outstanding balances. Because of her personality, she has no problems telling the patient who was calling to make an appointment You cannot see the doctor unless you have paid your bills. None of us, no one in the office had the courage to say that. But because of her, people paid their bills and it kept the private clinic open to serve the community. At the root of this issue is that this employee did her job and did it well and effectively. But if the decision was based on bias, she would have been fired a long time ago and the clinic would have suffered. Actually, this practical wisdom principle helps us spiritually because it helps us to forgive. Because if not, I feel sorry for those who have a bad reputation growing up as they will never be able to get the break they need. The good works that they try to do to reform their lives may always be overshadowed by their past actions. But this second principle, balanced with the first principle, ensures that we will not be tricked or scammed. The main issue is of primary importance. The circumstantial is of secondary importance. This helps us with messy situations. Solomon wisely broke this very messy situation down to its most basic root issue. Which child belongs to which mother? Now he will be able to clearly and wisely decide on this matter. Look at verses 24 to 27. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son and said, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother." To our surprise, King Solomon asked for a sword and ordered his guard to cut the living baby in two and give one half to one of the mothers and the other half of the baby to the other woman. When the command was given, presumably, to the surprise of everyone at court, the two women spoke up. The real mother of the living child basically said, don't kill her son, give him to the other woman. While the one who was lying said, kill the baby, so neither one of us would have it. You can see this woman's dark, dark heart. One can only speculate why she responded in such an evil manner. These responses caused Solomon to thus make his judgment and give the first woman the living child as she had truly exhibited a mother's loving heart. There is no indication in the text 
that God somehow gave Solomon a special prompting to know who was the real mother. But because he had wisdom, practical wisdom, and insight into understanding how people behave and their instinctive human responses, especially that of a mother's heart, Solomon was able to figure out who was the true mother of the living child and who was telling the truth. And this is our third practical wisdom principle, number three. Take time to understand people, their emotions, and their natural tendencies. Take time to understand people, their emotions, and their natural tendencies. That's why it's important to develop your EQ and SQ, your emotional and social or spiritual quotients, in addition to your IQ, your intelligence quotient, because it has been proven time and time again that book-smart people often don't make the best and wisest decisions. Many times, the spiritual, God-honoring thing to do is to take the common-sense approach or the approach that best understands people's natural tendencies. We see this play out all throughout the Scriptures in how Abigail dealt with King David and her husband Nabal in 1 Samuel chapter 25. That's also how Paul dealt with the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. In each of these cases, and many others throughout the Scriptures, we see very spiritual men and women taking the time to understand people, their emotions, their natural tendencies in order to make wise decisions. In fact, in the life of our Savior Jesus Christ, His ministry was so effective because He understood people. He understood where they were coming from and what they were going through in order to meet their specific needs. Whether it was how He gently dealt with little children, how he compassionately cared for the tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus, to how he gently handled the adulterous woman, and even with his own disciples. Jesus encouraged them when they were down. He waited for the perfect time to teach them. He admonished and rebuked them when it was appropriate, and he loved them and loved upon them for being who they were, sinners in need of a Savior. Another way to understand this principle is that it can be synonymous with the idiom, reading the room. Now, what does it mean to read the room? As someone defined, to read the room means to pick up on the subtle, nonverbal cues of a group of people. In practice, you become adept at noticing and responding to what we call micro-reactions. This might include body language, minute facial expressions, and context clues. Let's say you are in a silly, playful mood but you're about to enter a funeral wake. You need to read the room and the situation and change your behavior. You don't burst through the doors and exclaim, there is joy in this place for those who believe in Jesus. Why are you all so sad? You may be thrown out of that room. Or if you see that everyone is having a wonderful time of joy and laughter in a celebratory event, you need to read the room and not say something like, man, I hope you all know Jesus because if you don't, you guys will be going to hell you're not going to be really well-liked. My friends, it's important for Christians to read the room. And it's time to really understand and to take time to really understand people and what they're going through. Nothing annoys people more than insensitive Christians. You know, this principle can apply to Christian couples as well. Yes, prayer and Bible reading is vitally important. But sometimes Christians fight, especially Spouses, because they don't understand each other, not because they don't pray or read the Bible or go to church. 
It is biblical to love your spouse in such a way that you take the time to really understand them, to communicate well, to understand that men and women communicate differently. And we are to employ practical techniques, not necessarily described in the Bible, as God-honoring ways to help you as spouses become better communicators. Like this technique, Christian marriage counselor John Trent suggests, he suggests creating emotional word pictures. What is that? An emotional word picture is a tool that simultaneously activates the emotions and intellect of the listener. When you use a word picture to communicate, it can go straight to your spouse's heart. He describes this situation. We don't talk anymore, shouted my wife, Cindy. By the way, John's wife is also named Cindy. This is his story. But both our Cindy's are the same. They both shout. Anyways, he's telling the story. We don't talk anymore, shouted my wife, Cindy. That's ridiculous, I said. We talk all the time. But not about what we need to talk about. What's important to me? What's important for us? Then drive me to my softball game. If it's that big of a deal, you can talk to me on the way to the game about anything you want. You have my attention. But Cindy wouldn't go to that game. Soon after, she wouldn't go to any of my games. I was convinced she was just emotional or intentionally not explaining what she meant. She seemed convinced that I simply didn't care about her or anything she had to say. That was the level of communication in our first year of marriage. We talked about how we needed to communicate with each other all the time, but we never connected. Cindy became more and more hurt and lonely, and I grew more and more angry and lonely. Then the day came when things blew up, but in an amazing way. On that day, Cindy used a powerful communication tool, a word picture, to change my life in our marriage. One morning, after another night of frustration and fighting with each other, I walked into the kitchen and noticed a book on my breakfast plate. It was my thick, advanced psychopathology textbook. So what's this? I picked up the book off my plate. This is breakfast? I said, barely concealing my contempt. No, Cindy said, that's me. I responded, I don't get it. She replied, you know how last semester you were taking this class, she asked. You were reading this book and taking notes on, on it almost every night. You really dug into it, trying to learn all that was there, not just for the test, but because it might help you help someone someday. I nodded tentatively. And what's happened to that book now that you've passed the course, now that you're into another semester? She didn't have to say. I was using that book as a doorstop in my study. Sydney looked me in the eye. You toss it aside, she said. You don't pick it up anymore. It's not important to you now. And then without waiting for my response, she added, that book represents the way you've treated me ever since we have got married. When we were dating, you couldn't wait to pick me up, to read every page, to talk and act like I was important to your future. I looked at that textbook in my hand, thankful I had something to look at besides her disappointed expression. But now we're married. She pointed to her wedding ring. And you've moved on to another semester. I'm like that book, holding open your door while you walk in and do all the things that are truly important to you. I'm just not one of them. John Trent writes, I didn't just hear her words, I felt it. Cindy had, had, had said similar things using everyday words a hundred times before, but even when 
she would end our conversation in tears. It didn't emotionally move me. Then she used the word picture, the right one for me. And I not only got it, but it also stopped me in my tracks and turned my heart a different direction. What Cindy had done without realizing it was what biblical communicators from King David to Jesus to the Apostle Peter did all the time. She used a picture to carry the message of her words. An emotional word picture is a communication tool that uses a story or an object to simultaneously activate the emotions and the intellect of the listener. In doing so, the listener experiences your words, not just hear them. In short, when you use a word picture to communicate what you're trying to convey, it can go right through a spouse's defenses and straight into his or her heart. You see, my friends, you won't find this in the Scriptures, but these are techniques of practical wisdom that will help you in your everyday life. So, my friends, take time to understand people, read the room, and compassionately find out where they are coming from. This will allow you to make wise decisions. Look at verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. The Bible tells us because of the skill in which Solomon wisely handled the situation, all Israel came to fear, admire, and respect the king. Why? Note this. Because they saw the wisdom of God in him to administer justice. Notice that no Bible verses were quoted, no great spiritual principles applied, and yet in this display of practical wisdom, it was noted as the wisdom of God, meaning coming from him. You may walk away this morning saying, well, I didn't hear any spiritual wisdom principles. My friends, you do not separate spiritual wisdom and practical wisdom. All wisdom is God-given. And that's why we have this verse here. Because the Lord in His all-knowingness knew that perhaps we may split the difference. They saw in Solomon the wisdom of God in him to administer justice. My friends, our God is a very practical God who created us, made us, and gave us a brain. We should pray for wisdom, but many times God's will is revealed when we use our spirit-filled mind and God-given brain. As Eng and Virgo writes, God's spirit can direct your mind and reasoning. Sometimes Christians are so focused on hearing from God that they forget to use reason and common sense Just as the Holy Spirit can influence your emotions, He can also influence your mind. So my friends, remember, number one, don't believe everything you hear. Fact check, remembering there may be another truth. Number two, get to the heart of the issue, not allowing bias to color your judgment. And thirdly, take time to understand people, their emotions, and their natural tendencies. While these principles deal specifically with a disagreement or interpersonal conflict in this context, it can really apply to almost any situation in life that requires wisdom and discernment. May the Lord grant us wisdom to make the right decisions every day so that our lives will be a shining example of Christ's likeness and a testimony for Jesus to the world that is observing how followers of Christ live and act. Let's impact this world for Christ through our God-given practical wisdom.